was reminding or I was remembering about uh, Jai, if that's the way you say his name, I'm not sure if it is. Um, and the fact that obviously he is seen as the founder of uh, Tiantai Tendai. Mm -hmm. Shinran was a Tendai monk. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, that Jai had was this uh, idea of Panjiao, um, you know, doctrinal classification. Right. Uh, and I've just been reviewing it a bit this morning. And um, so Jai's idea was that, I mean, probably wasn't just his, but the idea that he subscribed to was that the Buddha taught different teachings in different parts of his life. You, mm -hmm. You've heard that idea, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think there are five... I think they identify five periods, you know, um, uh, of the Buddha's life. And I think if I'm right in saying, uh, he identifies the, lo the teaching of the Lotus Sutra as the final phase of the Buddha's teaching and obviously the most complete, if you like. This is Jai's point of view. Right. Are, are, you, are you with me so far? You, you more or less in agreement right. with that? Yes. Right. So the thought that I had was that... Um, I'm assuming that Shinran as a Tendai monk would have learned about this system. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I, I was kind of assuming that he would have learned about it. But the, the, the uh, classification system that Shinran comes to is very different. And he bases it in the, the ages of Dharma, as you, as you know, mm -hmm. uh, which comes out in the reading today, which is one of the reasons for bringing it up. Um, right. but, um, he, uh, he refers specifically to Saicho, or he cites Saicho, uh, uh, and Saicho's um, uh, analysis of the, of the ages of Dharma. Um, and so I, I suppose the question is maybe, well, you may not know whether Shinran knew about Zhuyi's classification system, but the question would be, why would he have abandoned that model and adopted a model based on the ages of Dharma, and yeah, why? Why would? How did that come about? I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. Uh, yeah, there, there, there are a couple. One, one is that um, that Yadjuri yeah, had had this this um, classification system, but he wasn't unique in that, uh, yeah. as I understand it. Almost all of the it was it was a, a very common response in China to this huge pr proliferation of teachings and and um, and it, and I suppose it was it was very confusing to people to to read um, what seemed to be inco uh, incompatible accounts of the Dharma if they happen you know if they just haphazardly read something that was a Buddhist text then something else that was a Buddhist text and so th this system was 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 um, was devised by a number of different schools to sort of place the teachings in a in a graduated uh, curriculum, so that there were cer so certain teachings that were said to well, for example, in the the uh, the Huayan or Abhatamsaka, I think the uh, the claim there was that that was the first thing that the Buddha taught, but then nobody could understand it, so he had to simplify it and do you know Avatamsaka for dummies and that's <laughs> that's sort of the early you know the uh Shravakayana Buddhism and and so there's 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 also this notion of uh different um levels of uh capacity right. for people to understand profound things 
and and um, and that that certainly comes out in this whole uh, Mapo preoccupation of the Kamakura period it was was that you know some of the teachings that were well the teachings and practices associated with the Travakiana period were possible for people in those days to do but they're no longer but but people no longer have that capacity so we have to do other other things yeah um yeah and in the section that we read today i must admit i didn't complete the whole reading because there were so many interesting things that i found in the first few pages um that i started focusing on those but um uh in in the section that we read um there's quite a bit of discussion about the the decline of dharma and the and the mm. last uh you know the last dharma age and right. even even it seems like um shinran even has a calculation for when that began i don't know if you saw that so I in, did. In, in, yeah. <laughs> so in in section 79 uh he says uh that we find that we were all, we are already 673 years into the last dharma age so i'm right. not sure what year he wrote that um but he's trying to put a precise date on it. I'm not. I'm also not sure what, because he's using it based on the dates of uh, the Buddha's death, and I'm not sure whether that was very accurate either. But but there's clearly this attempt anyway to make a, to make it something quite precise and to mm -hmm. to, to to clarify or argue for this idea that we're in a very specific or Shinran was anyway in a in a very specific historical moment. Uh, when the Dharma was in decline, um, and as you say, because of that, human capacities are, are lower, and so they require um, different kinds of teachings in order to uh, become enlightened. It's quite ingenious in a way, isn't it? It's, it's quite an ingenious way of trying to explain why you might have teachings that seem to say the opposite of one another. Right. Because um, right. they do, really. I mean, the basic Buddhism... Uh, tends to say, um, well, um, it's down to you. you. You need to practice. You need to liberate yourself. And and the the message that Shinran is um, sponsoring is, well, the complete opposite of that. Really, that there's nothing that you can do. The only thing you can do is place confidence in in uh, Amida. So on the surface, they just seem completely opposed. Um, so this idea of um, thinking that the, the teachings are designed for different historical periods when when mm. human beings have different capacities it is really quite uh, ingenious and and it's also quite it's, it's it's quite a general indian and buddhist idea isn't it this idea that the 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 the, the wheel of the dharma is turned and it flourishes for a while and then it begins to decline i mean you, you get that in hinduism as well don't you the idea yeah, right. The decline of, um, of the universe, I guess. Mm. Yeah, the, the uh, yeah the the ages, the, the yugas, the the, uh, the different eons or, or um, ages, and so according to um, Hinduism, we're in the kali kali yuga, which is the age of conflict. Right. Seems pretty accurate. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, so so with Shinran, what I'm wondering is uh, his his idea of thinking in terms of the final age of dharma is that did he get that from honin uh, or as as we're reading here uh, again in section 80 um he quotes from saicho a text by saicho who was obviously was seen as the founder of japanese tendai 
uh, where he's talking about these three ages. So I'm wondering maybe in his, in his studies, if you like, on, on Mount Hye, he was introduced to this idea of the ages of Dharma and somehow that resonated or, or whether, um, whether more specifically he, he studied that with Honan. Because, of course, one of the other major, uh, well, who became one of the major Buddhist teachers of this time, Nichiren, had the mm. same view, didn't he? He, mm. he also believed that it was a, an age of declining Dharma uh, right. and came to a different conclusion. He, he came to the conclusion that the only teaching that was relevant uh, to, the, to the age of declining Dharma was the Lotus Sutra. Right. And there are, there are passages in the Lotus Sutra that say that, and he, he quotes those, you know, in, in right. various places. Um, right. So it's interesting that they, they, they were both very much into the, in, influenced by this idea of the final age of Dharma, but they came to quite different conclusions about what that implied. And so, something else that was going on in China prior to the introduction of Buddhism, you know, before the Kamakura period, in Japan was was um, a number of a, a kind of millennialism um, and and uh, and and people anticipating the coming of um, Maitreya. Um, is that Miroku in, in Japan? Uh, I think it is. Yeah. Miroku, yeah. So so people were were uh, were anticipating that, and um, there was a there was a, a scholar named I'm pretty sure this was Helen Hardacre. Who wrote a, a book about the uh, Maitreya cults that arose in in China and and um, a number of uh, secular leaders, you know, emperors or conquerors, generals who were taking over territory were doing so, claiming to be Maitreya, bringing the Dharma back. <laughs> yeah. um, in my um, in my early days of exposure to spirituality uh, and reading kind of slightly um, spacey spiritualist magazines um, <laughs> I, uh, I came across this uh, this character you might have heard of called Benjamin Cream uh, mm. I, I think he's American I, I can't quite remember actually uh, where he's from uh, but anyway his whole thing was that Maitreya is about to reveal himself and I think he wrote several books and he was often writing articles saying, oh, yeah, it's probably going to happen quite soon. Uh, and even with some of the things, there was like, oh, and actually Maitreya appeared in Nairobi in 1988. And here's a photo, some kind of blurry photo of somebody who could be anyone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this constant kind of proclamation that, uh, you know, Maitreya is about to reveal himself and we need to kind of pay attention and prepare ourselves and so on. I, I'm just mentioning it, I guess, because it's interesting how these things go around. You know, they, they, <laughs> <clears throat> well, years ago, about the time that Benjamin Cream was <clears throat> was popular, I thought he was British. It may have been. He may yeah. be. Yeah, he but, may. Uh, but anyway, that um, what, whatever. I, I'm thinking maybe the late 90s or something like that <clears throat> there was um in the in the days of usenet you know where, where there, there were all these discussion groups um alt religion buddhism and alt short fat guy or whatever you know, all, these, all these kind of buddhist groups and and um 
and and I encountered someone who I was I was in Montreal at the time, but I encountered some followers of a man in New Mexico who was an Iranian who had set up a kind of um, in 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 one of the many sparsely populated parts of New Mexico um, had 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 set up a kind of a uh, of an encampment and and was surrounded by um, strange though this may seem young women <laughs> really <laughs> and and he actually claimed to be Maitreya. Um, and what was Maitreya's particular mission with, in relation to these young women, I wonder? Well, he had to bring the, bring the Dharma to them. <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure there was some physical transmission involved there somewhere. Probably. Yeah. And, 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 and I never, I actually, I had an exchange with him at one, at one time directly because he, he was also uh, on and, and um, I think in, in, in an attempt to, to show that he was being modest, he said he wasn't only Maitreya, but he was also the second coming of Christ and and, uh, and the Messiah. <laughs> and, and, and I suppose, well, that was actually also the claim of um, uh, Baha'u'llah, the, the founder of the Baha'i faith. I don't think he himself made that claim, but his followers certainly did. Mm. <clears throat> that that he, you know that the you know a theme in the in the Baha'i faith is that all religions in the world seem to have in common the anticipation of a coming um, savior who's going to set everything straight and bring peace and harmony and um, and so that once that narrative is out there it's I suppose only a matter of mm. human nature that some people are going to claim to have fulfilled it or that other or that more likely other people will claim on someone's behalf that they have fulfilled it. Uh, millenarianism is uh, is that the view that the world is coming to an end or is that the view that the savior that you just described is about to arrive or do those two things also link together? Yeah I'm, I'm thinking that it's um, yeah, the the, the 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 more the anticipation that that the world is about to, the world as we know it is is about to come to an end and and be replaced. I mean, you know the um, yeah. I I don't know whether in 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 uh, in in the UK there's been a phenomenon of um, uh, the the, the uh, people talking about the rapture of of. The second coming of of Jesus and or the second coming of Christ and the the rising from the earth into heaven of of all of the faithful people. Wow! And then the destruction of everyone else. Okay, is it in the Bible that idea? <clears throat> in the Book of Revelations. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I I would suggest, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would suggest that British people are less millenarian uh, than, than than Americans. I mean, obviously not all Americans, but it, it does seem to be a bit of a trend that you have these, like your Iranian guy, you know, there's, there, right. there's been quite a few of these people uh, setting up their own little villages or their communities or whatever and declaring, you know, that we're, they're, they're about to reach the, uh, the end of time. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about the guy, Jim Jones, who went to uh, 
Guyana, uh, mm-hmm. for instance, which was obviously pretty tragic. But you've got yeah. things like the Davidians, and I, I think there's been quite a lot, haven't there? Yeah, there have, and and and, and actually, it's it's interesting how many religious movements have begun in the United States. You know, the yeah. Mormons, yeah, and the Jehovah's yeah. Witnesses, right? Um, mm. um, yeah, and and in, in fact, the uh, the fundamentalist movement um, started in 1895 as, as a reaction to, uh, well, Darwinian thought was becoming very popular. And there was a conference that was called the something like the Return to the Fundamentals of Christianity. And, and they came up with a number of points. And, and uh, the mark of a true Christian was somebody who accepted these five principles in five fundamentals of Christianity. And, and those people were called fundamentalists pejoratively originally. And then, and then they themselves adopted the term uh, as, as a, as a, as a badge of honor in the same way that Quakers did. I mean, Quakers were, it was a pejorative term. And, uh, I'm sure that I knew that about the Quakers. Um, yeah. I mean, we could obviously talk the rest of the time about why it is that America has given birth to so many uh, new religious movements and traditions. And uh, I think that will be fascinating. I'm sure there's been many PhDs written on it. Um, but but go, going, back, going back to the idea of the millenarianism. So what you were saying was there was a, a current or a trend uh, towards millennial uh, cults in China. Uh, and particularly Maitreya. And it was and it was wrapped up with this notion that the Dharma had had disappeared. And there, there, right. there, there were what I found interesting in, in the uh, the literature that's cited by Shinran, it's a couple of things that, that really struck me, but one of them was um, well the, the, the attempt to calculate how far we were into into this. But it seems to be that the story of um, the, the sutras that he cited, the narrative was that it would be 500 years of Sadharma and then 500 years of Pratirupa Dharma, which is counterfeit Dharma, and then five, and then a thousand years of um, Paschima Dharma, the the end Dharma, which is actually what Mapo means. The, the characters mean end end final Dharma period and and um, and then that thousand years ends, and there's not much discussion of what happens after that. Mm. Um, so where are we now? That's you know, yeah. yeah, certainly well beyond the end of Mapo. Are we now in an age of you know no Dharma whatsoever? Yeah. Or yeah, it would also it would be interesting to know what contemporary Shin theologians say about that. Um, yeah, would whether whether they just ignore it or whether they found some way to accommodate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what, well, what, what you're noting there is that it seems that Shinran didn't really concern himself with that. Um, he, didn't, he didn't really concern himself with predicting what's going to happen when the Dharma finally disappears. He was more focused on, uh, well, the situation of the last mm-hmm. days of Dharma and, uh, right. and how to respond to that. Yeah, where, where, where are we now and what do we do now he was far more interested in that than in prognostication, I guess. 
Right, yeah, the, 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 you were referring to uh, a passage from uh, a Mahayana master called Kwe Chi, uh, something like that, and a mm -hmm. citation from a sutra called Auspicious Kalpa Sutra, right. uh, where, it, yeah, where it says the right Dharma lasts 500 years. The sem sem oh, here it says uh, the semblance Dharma age for a thousand years. And then, oh, hang on, after the Buddha's Parinirvana, the right Dharma age lasts for 500 years and the semblance Dharma age for a thousand years. Okay. After this period of 1500 years, Shakyamuni's teaching will become completely extinct. Hmm. Maybe that, so maybe there are slightly different models of this or, you know, different versions of it. Yeah, I, I remember once, um, it's in the Theravadan uh, Vinaya that, that um, the Dharma would last for a thousand years um, and, then, and then be replaced by semblances. Anyway, I don't think they use, they don't use those terms. But that you know it would it would degenerate and yeah. and um, and and there would be a tremendous amount of confusion. In fact, in the in the Diga Nikaya, there's there's that whole um, there's that whole um, sutta in the Diga Nikaya. Is that the Aganya Sutta? Um, uh, there's there's one that's about like the universe and the creation of the universe and. Yeah, and it's 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 it's. Uh, I, I think it's the one that's immediately after the uh, the uh, Chakravartin um, Sutta. But but it, but there, but there yeah, there's there's a, a it's it's linked to um, degeneration that happens when a when a uh, when a, a monarch ceases to take care of the poor, and then there's this long long degeneration of um, increasing hostility and upheaval and eventually um, life becomes so short because of violence everywhere that people just barely live long enough to procreate you know and, and so people are dying in their in their teens you know and, and uh, life is is extremely short and and then a group of people kind of re um, retreat from from society and go off and live among themselves and they live in harmony and then everybody gets sort of observes them and says let's live let's live like that and so then then the cycle begins to reverse um, so and, and I, I I find that I find that that account really really pretty interesting I mean it's it's as if there was there's a notion that's that's quite clear that that the not the Dharma itself, but the the um, <clears throat> what some people call the dispensation, you know, is the institutions around the Dharma will will degenerate <clears throat> and be, and become less pure, and there will be more and more confusion about what what really is the Dharma anyway. I mean, all these different people claiming to be proclaiming the Dharma, but they're not in accord with one another and um and and, and that it, it it's given as this, as if it's inevitable well in the vinaya of course you know there's the famous claim that the dharma would have lasted for a thousand years had it not been for the insistence of ananda to allow women to become ordained and and because that, of that it, that's it, it, actually um or something similar is mentioned here um, 
don't yeah. know whether you caught that. So <clears throat> I actually, it's actually just doing the math on this. And there's a, the, the passage in this chapter that deals with ages of Dharma is about 11 pages. So it's quite a long section uh, where yeah. he's um, exploring <coughs> the idea of the ages of Dharma. And particularly section 80 is a section of nine pages where he's basically talking about this um, text by Saicho called Lamp for the Last Dharma Age uh, yeah. and giving various quotes and quotes from other things there. Uh, but after what I just quoted about the, uh, the time periods, uh, he goes on to say, uh, no mention of the last Dharma age is made here. According to other expositions, the right Dharma age lasts 1,000 years. However, since nuns do not observe the eight rules of deference and are indolent, the right Dharma does not extend any further than 500 years. Right. Uh, right. So there's a bit of a similar uh, idea in there. But then he goes on to say, which uh, I found really quite uh, odd, uh, further, the Nirvana Sutra states, in the last Dharma age, a multitude of 120,000 great bodhisattvas uphold the Dharma so that it does not perish. So that sounds quite good, doesn't it? But then right. it says, since this statement concerns bodhisattvas of high rank, it also is irrelevant to our discussion here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, uh, one time I, I asked a Theravadan monk about this and he said you, you know it, it said according to the to the Vinaya the the, uh, the Dharma will only last in its pure form for 500 years so what are we doing <laughs> you know, what's going on now <laughs> and, and and he he didn't even bat an eye. He said, "He said that's a mistranslation, um, because the word for even though the word used means a hundred, it also means a thousand. <laughs> so it's actually five thousand years. <laughs> right. We're all safe. So it's it's a kind of quite a complex and contentious area, I guess. Yeah, um, it, it's yeah. something about these descriptions of the of the mapo." That I found fascinating. I did. I really, I really found this whole thing quite quite interesting. That um, you know, there are these descriptions of well, in in these final age, there will be people who are monks, but they'll be married and they'll be, you know, going around to gambling establishments and and uh, and uh, pubs, as you call them, or taverns, as we call. Them. <laughs> With their, with you know, with their children in tow, you know, <laughs> just sort of what could, what could be less monk-like. But despite all of that uh, behavior, which is not in keeping with the age of Sadharma, they're still worthy of respect. Yeah, it's quite interesting in a way uh, because um, Japanese Buddhism, in particular, uh, well, several schools of it actually turned out to except marriage, didn't it? Uh, including, yeah. including Jodo Shinshu, obviously. Uh, right. Um, and very, but, but various others, which is, uh, as I understand it, quite an unusual development within Buddhism. It's the only country that I can think of that, that, that upholds that approach. Yeah, uh, the, uh, the abbot of a temple is almost, well, it's hereditary. And so 
if your father is the abbot of the temple and you're the oldest son, you become the abbot of the temple. And does, I mean, would that apply to whatever school? Would that be Zen as well? Um, yeah. So the Zen priests are married and Jodo Shinshu, Tendai. I remember reading not long ago, well, it was a few years ago now, reading a, a book about contemporary Tendai. And it was a bit like a, a kind of case study or a lot of it was a case study on the life of, of a particular temple uh, priest, uh, a Tendai temple priest. And I was kind of reading about his life. And I was thinking, that is almost exactly the same as mine. Uh, so what, what he did was, what is, what is um, life, he, well, he was married with children. So I, I don't have children, but I have, you know, I've had a, a long-term partner before. But anyway, so on the one hand, he had his temple. So he did kind of services and so on in the temple. But in order to earn a living, he was teaching in a school. Um, that's what he did. And at that time, I was doing something very, very similar. And right. it kind of really struck me that we, we have this idea of the Eastern monk or the Eastern priest as something very kind of distant and exotic. And I was reading about his lifestyle. And as I say, it sounded very, very similar to mine, uh, which really quite surprised me. Yeah. Yeah, I, w I was thinking of that as well. I was thinking that the, the description of the, uh, <clears throat> you know, they're obviously given as, as examples of fallen monks. Um, <clears throat> with, you know, the description of You were thinking it sounds like Dharmacharis in <clears throat> Dharmacharinis. That's what you were thinking. I was thinking exactly that, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 when I was in, in, in Japan, um, one of the things that I, I, would, I just found shocking when I first encountered it, and eventually I just got used to it, but people would make offerings, you know, people would go into uh, Buddhist temples, and, and there's, there's always, a, you know, a shrine, um, and, and it's very often an uh, Amitabha, but sometimes other forms of the Buddha, but lay people, when they bring in gifts, offerings, they bring in these 1.8 liter bottles of uh, sake, and 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 if they want to 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 really give a, a you know a, a very treasured gift, they would give um, some scotch whiskey. You know the, the Japanese love scotch whiskey. <laughs> right. I didn't know that, but sake can be pretty expensive, so that's quite a. Quite well, an yeah. exotic gift. Um, yeah, the, yeah, such the, a the, large bottle of it is pretty strong as well as uh, as you know. So, yeah, you one point eight liters. That would uh, that would take care of you, right? <laughs> right. And, and when when I was in in Kyoto uh, visiting in, in Kyoto, I had a um, someone introduced me to a well. I guess it, he was the abbot of of, of his temple. He was, he was a young man uh, and. And and he invited he invited me to his temple and and we sat down and and it was it was cold it was winter time and um, in in Japan uh, there's there's a there's a a structure where you can sit on the edge there's kind of a, a pit you put your feet in the pit and then you put a blanket around your your lap and and uh, and there's a heater inside so your legs are kept your feet are kept warm and um, and so we were sitting at this thing, and he he brought out a big bottle of sake and and war, you know warming the sake, and just kept passing me these cups. Well, they're very small, and and um, 
it, it eventually went, it eventually I realized that, that I, I had, I, I, I really had to pee. <laughs> I excused myself and stood up. When I stood up, I realized I was so drunk. I could just barely walk. <laughs> it was just, I was just blitzed. And I, and I, I thought, I, I remember as I was trying to find my way to the, to the toilet, I just, I thought, this is so ironic. This is probably the, the drunkest I've ever been in my life and I'm in a Buddhist temple. <laughs> Brilliant, but 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 I th you know I I I think the um, I think the uh, description of um, of the you know these sort of degenerate monks really does um, it, it really is a very good description of of Japanese society and Shinran I think was the first um, monk to to say that it doesn't really matter to whether you're a monk, you know, he, 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 he disrobed and got married. And, wow. and I think, I don't think he did it in that order. I think, didn't, didn't he get married while he was still a monk? Um, I imagine so, yeah. yeah. So Honen never married, is that right? I, no, I think he didn't. He but Shinran definitely did and, and had several, several children, um, right. uh, as we know. Um, yeah, so well, just to kind of go back a bit to this idea of the, uh, kind of millennial, millenarian thinking and um, the last age of Dharma. Yeah, you gave a, a classification a little bit earlier and uh, I'm kind of reviewing a bit how Shinran approaches it and it seems like there's quite a number of different schemes to explain how long it all takes and how long each age is. For instance, right. he quotes um, something from the Nirvana Sutra which says that um, the, the age of... Um, true dharma was divided into three sections uh, i think uh, yeah so there's um in during the first 500 years after nirvana monks will be resolute in attaining emancipation through the right dharma in the next 500 years they will be resolute in meditation in the next 500 years they will be resolute in listening to the teaching in the next 500 years they will be resolute in constructing temples Right, and in the last five hundred years, there will be resolute in conflict and disputes, and the pure <laughs> and the pure Dharma will sink into dormancy. So that's like um, is that two thousand five hundred years? Um, yes. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So there's slightly different schemes that he. There's quite a number of different schemes that he presents. There. There's a few others on top of that. I think that he talks about. But anyway, the the basic idea is that he he clearly bought into this idea um, of the, um, the decline of Dharma. And I suppose a question that I have was whether that was a conscious choice um, on his part or whether he was really just following a quite generalized uh, tendency that was prevalent at the time, uh, or maybe we don't have an answer for that question. Because mm. uh, uh, as we've already mentioned, I think Honin also subscribed to the idea of the decline of Dharma. I'm not sure about that. It'd be good to check I'm, on that. I'm pretty sure that that uh, I'm pretty sure that every everyone did. That, I mean, it was very much a preoccupation of the Japanese because they they realized that they were depending on um, I, <clears throat> something that I find interesting is that when they're calculating when the Buddha died, <clears throat> they do it in terms of which. <clears throat> which king was on the throne in in, uh, in China, 
which which dynasty was 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 uh, was going on in China. <clears throat> there seems to be a, a certain amount of disagreement about when the Buddha lived, but <clears throat> by by everyone's calculation, it seems to have been recognized that they were at they were beyond you know the shelf life of the Dharma <laughs> had expired. Yeah, yeah. So this brings <clears throat> me a, a couple of other questions about um, kind of sequence and history. And I mean, this is going to sound like maybe sound like a dumb question, but uh, one question that has risen for me is: did, Was Shinran aware of? what we would call the Theravada teachings. Because I, I can't think of a single mention in anything that we've read uh, that shows any awareness of, well, I guess they would have been the Argamas, wouldn't they? The, the Chinese version of the, of the early scriptures. I'm, right. I'm not aware of any mention of that. Yet, it, yet in Zhui's scheme, uh, he does, as, as, he do, as you said earlier, he does incorporate um, the early teachings into his scheme. But I, there's, there seems to be no mention of it in, um, in Shinran. So I'm kind of, what I'm wondering is when, when uh, Tendai was taken to Japan, whether they left that part out um, and they, they didn't really have familiarity with those teachings. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... The, the, as, as I understand it, I, I haven't read a great deal about Tendai, but I, um, I recall that the Tendai teachings did have that same schema in it um, of, of the early, you know, the, the Shravakayana teachings, which of course would have been Agamas, which were different schools. They were not, they were, I don't think anything from the Theravada school actually was translated into Chinese. Right. The, the Argamas yeah. was a bit of a kind of, um, as we would say in, uh, in, in, in Mexico, a callejero. Um, so do you know what a, a mongrel, uh, like oh, a, okay. Okay. One, of the, one of those dogs that is the inheritor of like uh, lots of different uh, okay, uh, right. breeds of dog, you know, that right. the, so the Argamas wasn't a single canon, was it? It was bits pulled from different, um, even different languages, I think, and, and different schools. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in um, Etienne Lamotte's uh, Histoire de Buddhism, History of Buddhism, there's, right. there's a, a fair amount of uh, a passage, you know, a section of that book in which he talks about the differences between the Agamas and the Theravada literature, even, even though many of the sutras would have had exactly the same title or, you know, a counterpart of it yeah. um, in, a, in a slightly different uh, dialect, um, that the contents were, were significantly different. And, and I think the, uh, you know, the, 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 the sutra, uh, Sautrantikas and, and uh, Sarvastivada and some of those early, early schools, their, their, uh, their literature was translated into Chinese. Their agamas were translated into Chinese, but yeah, you're right. It's it's a uh, it's kind of like an anthology. <laughs> so, so we don't really know what exposure, if any, Shinran had to those <coughs> teachings. Um, I'm, I'm guessing some of them must they must have been brought to Japan at some stage, maybe in the earlier phases of uh, of Japanese Buddhism, the sort of scholastic phase, you'd think. I mean, because yeah, you've got you've got like orientations like Ritsu, 
which is more about Vinaya. So I'm guessing that Vinaya must have must have its sources in Indian Buddhist Vinaya, I suppose, then right. translated into the the Agamas and into Chinese and so on. But it's quite notable that I well at least so far, I've not seen a single reference to anything that we could consider to be um, kind of early early Buddhism. No, and and um, my impression is, I mean, I really don't know when when the Japanese canon was formed. The Korean, the, the Korean version. I mean, they they all were collections of Chinese sutras, uh, Chinese translations of sutras. Um, but I, I'm thinking that the canon in Korea was not formed until around the 12th or 13th century and and Japan must have been a bit later than that even so i i don't know whether they had any well they certainly didn't have anything like the canon that they now have which is yeah, and the other thing that i was wondering about was that i read somewhere that um i don't know when what century this was maybe it was the 18th century or something like that that at that stage, Japanese Buddhists uh, did not know that the religion of Buddhism that they followed was the same one uh, that was uh, that emerged in India. Mm. Uh, that they kind of lost that historical link or historical knowledge. Right. Um, and so, uh, what I'm wondering is: was Shinran aware that the Buddha was born in India, uh, or was all of his knowledge simply based on like Chinese sources and that kind of, he, he must have been aware of it, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah I think that because there, there was that, that sort of legend that, uh, that um, Lao Tzu, Lao Tzu uh, went from China to India. So I think they always knew that, that the, um, the, the, the Buddha was, was from India. I mean, after all, there's, you know, the coming of, of uh, the Dharma from 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 the West, the Bodhidharma, that whole right. I mean, every everyone was quite a, quite aware that he was Indian. I think, but they may not have been very much aware of of the uh, contents of the Indian scriptures. And in fact, that yeah. that book that we were talking about a couple of <clears throat> sessions ago, pruning the Bodhi tree, um, <clears throat> makes the point that it was really only in in the uh, Meiji period, which is beginning in 1852 or something like that, that, that Japanese scholars began investigating the Chinese, the Agamas, and, and, and rediscovering early Buddhism. Yeah, maybe that's what I'm referring to, and I've slightly exaggerated what, what I read there. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so anyway, we've got Shinran, who doesn't seem to have any points of reference in relation to early Buddhism at all. All, all of his right. reference points are... Mahayana scriptures, and more specifically, Mahayana scriptures inherited through the Chinese lens, if you like, or in, inherited through the, the what 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 came to China, what arrived in China. Right. And in, in addition to that, he's reading all of these texts in Chinese, isn't he? And I think right. we established that. So that, that that was the other thought that I was having. You know, Shinran. Uh, I think uh, was or began studying Tendai at about the age of nine, I think, uh, something around there. 
and uh, I sort of found myself thinking, um, and what did all of that consist in? You know, what, what was he actually doing? Um, yeah. So presumably, at one point, he must have been studying classical Chinese. That must right. have been uh, part of what he was doing in order to be able to read these scriptures, because he clearly can read them, because he's quoting them all over the place and right. giving his own interpretations. And I think, as you emphasized previously, your impression is that all of the quotations from scriptures are probably given in Chinese. Right. And then sometimes his uh, uh, commentaries are in Japanese. Right. Um, although the writing <coughs> system was quite similar uh, no. using, using kanji. Um, so so what I suppose what I'm getting at is that he was ordained into quite a kind of scholarly environment, really. Um, you know, one where to really access uh, Buddhist knowledge, you were, you were required to, to enter into quite serious language study. Right. Quite serious textual study, um, which Tendai, from what I understand, emphasized uh, a lot. Um, and, uh, and so Shinran would have been studying a lot of different sources as he shows, um, uh, but then later on, uh, he, uh, he, he takes a different turn, I guess. It seems to be when he does this solitary retreat in this, um, in this temple in Kyoto, um, and he has this sort of vision um, and decides to go and look for Honen, and then apparently then he has another kind of transformative moment in relation to his practice to Honen that takes him down the the pure land route so from from being the inheritor of this very um complex and uh syncretic uh tradition which is tendai uh, and very very scholarly quite i guess very elitist as well because i mean who can learn all who can learn and study all this stuff you, you need a lot of time um uh, and you know privileged uh, a privileged context. So then he kind of decides on a really, well, we could say narrow, um, a very, very narrow approach um, to practice. It's quite a big change, isn't it? It's a it huge is. change. Yeah, you, in order to do the, the Tendai curriculum, you had to come from a very privileged, you know, wealthy family or, you know, a high, highly placed aristocratic family had to have access to time and money. And, and uh, yeah, it would have been a very elite um, group of people who could, who could be scholars <clears throat> in, in Japanese Buddhism. And, and then of course he, um, he and a good many other people popularized it, even though they themselves were, were, were very um, erudite people, they somehow disseminated the Dharma for the common person, and that's, you know, Zen is, is is an example of that. Sort of, you know, burning the sutras, you know, <laughs> symbolically, you know, that that whole sort of narrative of, and, um, of of a transmission outside the letter and all that is is one way of popularizing. Another another way is reciting the Nambutsu, and another way is reciting the uh, the name of the Lotus Sutra. Yeah. Yeah, and it, I mean it's interesting that that the the in well in the Kamakura period uh, and really um, several of these were exact contemporaries. Um, I think Nichiren, Dogen, and uh, uh, Shinran were contemporaries. 
um, right. but they they were all involved in this process of offering a more well maybe we could say a more exclusive approach um, certainly uh, a simplified approach perhaps Zen's a bit more a bit more complex but um, Nitchin was very concerned to present you know, a very, very accessible approach, you know, just recite the name of the Lotus Sutra, Shinran, oh, just re recite the Nimbutsu. And, and this all kind of emerged during this, uh, this period. Incidentally, uh, if you're interested in, um, there, there is a Wikipedia article on the Chinese, just the entry title is Chinese Buddhist Canon. And I was just looking at it and it says that it's talking about all of the various recensions of the Chinese Buddhist canon. And it says that the, the earliest collections for the Tripitaka were in the seventh century and that the Korean Tripitaka was put together in between 1236 and 1251. And here's something that just completely shocked me, which is that the Taisho Shinju Daizokyo, which is the Japanese Tripitaka was put together in 19, between 1924 and 1934. And, and uh, many of the volumes of that, I think the last 20 or 30 volumes are, are by Japanese writers, even though they wrote in Chinese. <clears throat> but um, yeah, the, gosh, that really does, that really does raise the question, what, what was uh, Honen familiar with? I mean, Sh uh, Shinran. Yeah, and, and possibly people don't even know. Maybe we don't even know the complete answer to that. Um, right. Uh, we, one thing that we can know is the things that he, that he recites. For sure, yeah. He quotes, and, and it, as, you, as you've pointed out, I mean, a lot of the... I'm, I'm a little bit um, embarrassed, actually, by how many of the things that he recites are things I have never heard of, you know completely learning about them for the first time. Um, so there was obviously a lot of literature that was available to him that is not yet commonly available to us, I guess, in, in English. Right. So these are kind of sutras that maybe, um, well, either, either were originally written in Chinese or only survive in Chinese versions. Right. And, they, and then were transmitted to Japan. Right, and, and and as you say, some of which may uh, uh, so far have not been translated into Western languages. Mm. Is there anything else from this uh, this section that you'd like to uh, dwell on? Um, let me let me just. There were some passages that I that I marked. Let me just see. I think we've probably discussed most of those passages. Um, the ones that I had marked. I was I was kind of I was struck by, as so often happens uh, in in Buddhism in general, but certainly in Mahayana, there's these incredibly large numbers that they deal with, they deal in. So I was just looking. There was one passage that I had marked. I don't know why, but it's on page two two hundred and sixty seven, and it says, "Then the Buddha said to the ten billion." Deva King Mahabrahmas, <laughs> 10 billion. Um, I place in your hands all beings who practice the Dharma, abide in the Dharma and accord with the Dharma and who shun evil. 
you leaders of sages obtain freedom in expounding the teaching in your own dominions in the 10 billion fourfold continents. That's from a sutra, it would seem, called the Great Collection Sutra. Right. Um, do you know what that is? No. No. The, yeah, the, the sentient beings in those places are vile, coarse, and malicious. They altogether lack pity for others, conceive no fear for the next life, and impinge upon and distress the minds of all, whether warriors, Brahmins, merchants, and peasants or serfs. They do so even to the minds of animals. In this way, they engage in the destruction of life and hold the wrong views. Through those acts, through these acts, they bring about untimely winds and rains, the impairment and diminution of the vital energy of the earth, of sentient beings, and of the right dharma. You are to stop them and lead them to good acts. It, it, I mean, it's, it really is interesting how there's, you know, this kind of very strong missionary dimension of, of, of Buddhism as, as talked about in these sutras where you have this contrast, this description of, of people le leading violent, cruel lives of uh, belittling one another and killing one another and, 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 uh, and, the, and these kind of heroic figures are to go into these areas and, 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 and civilize them. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, and I wonder how, whether there was an atmosphere of that going on. And in, in, um, I mean, Buddhism had, had, had been in Japan since about the sixth century or you know, the Nara period. Um, but, and, and, and then there was a kind of the Nara period, then the Heian period where the, the capital was in Kyoto. That's often portrayed as kind of the pinnacle of a real civilization. And then there's this kind of sense that things are, uh, the life in Japan has degenerated into something like the Warring States period in China. And, and, and another, another factor is that was very much a feature of Kamakura period Buddhism was the, the, uh, the Mongols who had, who had um, Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan. Right. And the, the threat of the Mongols coming across uh, in, into Japan and, and they were seen as a very barbaric force. Yeah, Shinran was, a, I was looking up um, some world history to see uh, with whom Shinran was contemporaneous. Uh, and he was precisely contemporaneous with the, the rise of Genghis Khan. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, and St. Francis of Assisi, which is quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. In quite a different part of the world. Yeah. And and, and wasn't it about that time that uh, Thomas Aquinas was? Uh, I, I think it was. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's a very, it seems like there was a lot going on at that time uh, in different, really? different places. Uh, also, the, the, the sack of Nalanda uh, happened during uh, Shinran's lifetime. Oh, really? and it is, it's quite interesting to think about the fact that, you know, he obviously knew nothing about living or what, what Buddhism was like in India in his own lifetime. But at the very moment that he was, you know, doing his things, uh, Nalanda was being finally destroyed, you know, which is really, I guess, the, well, it's seen as the kind of coup de grace for Indian Buddhism, isn't it? Exactly, um, yeah. Yeah, it, and, yeah that, 
I was just thinking also of, of uh, you know, the, the traveler, uh, well, Xunzang and, and I Ching, those people who went to China, went from China to, uh, to India, because they had this notion that since Buddhism started in India, maybe the people in India who were practicing Buddhism were practicing a purer form than, than they had in China. And I think there was a, a realization that, is, that um, Chinese, Chinese Buddhism was so intermingled with Confucianism and Taoism that um, a lot of people had no idea. I think I've told you I had a, a Vietnamese monk. He was a, um, a disciple of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, and he, he was living. He was living in Montreal, and um, he, he he went to McGill University, got a PhD in in Buddhist studies, in, in religious studies, and um, I guess I I think I think he only went as far as the MA, actually, but he he did an MA an MA study, and I remember him telling me once that it was not until he took my classes that he realized that some of the things that he thought were Buddhism were actually Confucianism. <laughs> that he, you know, they're just all part of, uh, of, of what, just sort of Vietnamese culture and, 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 and that people didn't even try to sort out whether something came from, um, in, 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 in probably in a very similar way to, to uh, Christians, you know, not, not paying very much attention where, where does the where does the Christmas tree come from, you know, or, or all of these different aspects of, of things are just now part of Christian culture. Yeah, and going back to the, the Chinese travelers and so on, uh, obviously, to some extent, the same happened uh, in Japan with some uh, teachers from Japan, in this case, going to China, seeing China as the, as the source. Um, mm -hmm. When I mentioned Sideshow earlier, uh, Dogen himself yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that Shinran uh, didn't uh, think about going to China even though he's clearly aware that a lot of the sources that he is drawing on like Pure Land sources like Daozhou and Shandao etc they're mm -hmm. Chinese sources but he, he didn't seem to consider it relevant to go to where they taught and, and learn how people practice there right yeah, yeah, and it's not it's not clear whether that was simply because he didn't think it was necessary, or whether he didn't have the means, or yeah. you know, the opportunity never arose. Yeah, there 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 are a lot a lot of a lot of uh, um, aspects of Japanese Buddhist history, the history of Buddhism in Japan, that I actually know nothing about. Or, you know, it's sort of there are a lot of a lot of questions that, that are kind of coming up as a result of doing this, studying this this volume. I'm just beginning, I mean, becoming really quite aware of the depth of my ignorance. Yeah. Uh, uh, another thing that I was uh, reading about was, um, the, the, or starting to read about anyway, was that there's a certain interpretation of. Um, of Shinran and true Pure Land Buddhism uh, that, that goes along the lines of Shinran's vision or his way of seeing things was like the, the culmination or the, the, the natural um, 
destination or the organic destination, if you like, uh, of pure land thought. Mm -hmm. um, and some people argue that, well, it's not that, like that at all. There are actually many different um, pure land uh, theologies, if you like, uh, and Shinran's is just one of them. I mean, mm -hmm. yes, he, he happened to uh, gain a lot of support or his, his uh, approach gained a lot of support afterwards, but that doesn't mean that it was, that it should be seen as the, the, the sort of the natural outcome. Uh, uh, and I, I'm partly mentioning it because, I mean, he arrives at what on the surface seems to be quite a um, quite an extraordinary point of view, really, doesn't he? Um, mm -hmm that's quite difficult to get your head around and difficult, even difficult to understand why he arrived at that. Because um, even, even Honen, uh, his own teacher, from what I can understand, he didn't dismiss uh, completely the role of self-power. Um, Honen himself remained a monk. And from what I've understood, he continued to observe other aspects of monastic practice, um, like the precepts, for instance. Um, uh, and he, he, he also continued to recite the Nimbutsu. Uh, from mm -hmm. what I've read, he recited it like thousands of times a day. Um, mm -hmm. um, so he still seemed to think that self-power had a role, that you, know, you, there's, you, you, you do have to do something. Um, uh, and and Shinran will come to this conclusion that about Hakurai and so on. I guess I'm trying to get my head around a bit about how he how he got there, if you like, how he got to that that point of view that seems very radical. I mean, I find it a very attractive view in many ways. Um, it's not that I think that it's crazy or anything, but it, but on the surface of it, it doesn't seem very in harmony with most Buddhist thought. And right. He, even the sources that he uses, actually, because often he's having to slightly um, shoehorn things or, or ignore certain things or reinterpret things to make them fit with his way of seeing things when on the surface they, they seem to say the opposite. Yeah. yeah so, something that, I, that, that strikes me is that um, the, well, in Korea and Vietnam, um, the Pure Land teachings and the Zen teachings are all incorporated. Are there, and and, and they're, they're, I think that may, maybe the influence of, of Jari is to is to include as much as possible, and to have um, to have available. Well, as, as in the Western, you know, in in the in the Tri Ratna Buddhist order, what used to be called the Western Buddhist order, that you know, you have the attempt to to make available to every to everyone as much as possible that's Buddhism without insisting that there's just this one thing that that you have to do <clears throat> and and um, there's there's not there's not seen to be any kind of incompatibility at all between pure land and Zen you know you can you can recite Nam Bull in, in uh, Korean uh, as a Zen practitioner and it's sort of like invoking maybe inspiring yourself or in, invoking help but the sharp division between self-power and other power isn't isn't there at all and what ha what, what you seem to have in, in Japanese Buddhism is all of these people who came from 
from the Tendai tradition, which includes everything. I mean, really, it literally includes every, you know, everything of which they were aware that's considered to be Buddhism. And then they, they sort of um, focus on just one thing, whether it's the Nembutsu or, or the Lotus Sutra, and, and actually sort of eschew everything else. Like, just, mm. it's, a, it's a very strange uh, yeah. move from an all-inclusive to a very particularist uh, approach. I mean, I think that's really well put. Um, and uh, yeah, it does seem quite uh, strange from the outside. So, so I suppose what, I mean, various, there might be various possibilities. One might be that they kind of realized that this, this vast inheritance that they were trying to deal with was so overwhelming um, that they, it, it wasn't really possible to deal effectively with it. Um, so mm-hmm. so they, they then chose to focus on something more specific Right. Um, as a sort of pragmatic, to some extent, um, and practical uh, approach. Uh, but then, of course, as well, maybe they had the reflection that, well, it's all right for us, these privileged scholastic people who can read classical Chinese and study for years and years and years uh, to look at all of these texts. But clearly, pretty much everyone is not in that situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so how on earth can we uh, present a, a vision of the Dharma that they can, they can relate to, that they could get their heads around? Right. Uh, and, and so maybe that was part of their thinking as well. Yeah, yeah and, and maybe in doing that, they, they didn't want to make it too obvious that they were providing Dharma for dummies. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nowadays, people actually celebrate you know, there, there was a, a book called, um, you know, Buddhism for Buddhism for idiots or something like that. There's, right. there's a series of, of books uh, like that, but but you know, I don't. If, if you are, if 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 you're, if you as a as a teacher are conscious that you're providing something that's simplified. You don't want to tell the people that you're that you're giving that teaching to that it's a simplified teaching. You want, and 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 so I think I think you might want to say, well, this teaching that I'm giving you has everything that you can get by spending 20 years as a Tendai monk. You can get all of that by just saying the Buddha. Yeah, and and it's interesting that while Shinran and Nichiren chose different practices their their kind of reasoning is quite similar really um mm-hmm. so you know she nitrin says well the whole content and value of the lotus sutra is contained contained in the title mm-hmm. so all you need to do is recite the title and that calls forth all the benefits and merits of, of the whole sutra yeah. and then shinran saying well you know just say the nimbutsu and that invokes you know the the mind of Amida and even you don't even need to say it because Amida says it through you and, and so on. Um, yeah. And they're, they're trying to sort of um, condense everything, as you say, into something that's very simple and easy to do. I mean, to my mind, I, I, I think it's quite, quite a noble thing to do uh, because my sense is that, <clears throat> Japanese Buddhism was quite elitist mm-hmm. um, 
it probably is now, but uh, anyway, uh, uh, at that time it was elitist and we, we talked about Tendai um, and that it didn't seem very concerned with trying to reach out to regular people, uh, more concerned with uh, the elite levels of society. And from, from what I've read, it was really only in the Kamakura period that, that, that there were kind of serious attempts or extended attempts to try to reach outside of that to more regular people. And well, as you know, Shinran himself was in exile in some fishing village somewhere where he was a lot more in contact with, with ordinary people. And so it does seem that genuinely some of these monks were really concerned to try and reach out to, to, to more ordinary people to offer them something in terms of the Dharma, which, which seems a very positive thing to me. Yeah, I, th I think so. And I, 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 they, they probably observed that um, the life of ordinary people was fairly coarse, you know, and, and, uh, and um, not necessarily guided very, very much by sort of higher ideals of human behavior and that they were, they wanted to pro provide something that would be um, useful to these people without, without doing it in a patronizing or, you know, way, paternalistic way, but really did sincerely think that this was, this would be to the benefit of those people. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there is actually something very noble about it. Um, well, maybe we're coming to the end of our, our discussion of it for today then. Um, and I think I think we we have um, you know really only another twenty pages of this um, of this work. So so then then we can aim to finish this off and then and then uh, think next time about where we want to go from here. Yeah, yeah. Get letters, the letters off. is certainly something I'd like to do eventually. I, I I mean I think that might be a good move to look at the letters because the letters are a lot more personal and uh, pastoral, mm -hmm. um, whereas clearly the Kyogyo Shinshu is a lot more scholarly and I mean there's so many textual co quotations in it. Um, right. You you don't get so much of a sense of Shin, Shinran's theology in it. Right, uh, and that I'm, I'm interested to to get to grips with more his his own thoughts. Um, yeah, and then and then meanwhile, I'll I'll, I'll I'll take a look at the things that you've uh, that you've sent me. I'm actually quite eager to to read that, oh. and um, I'll I can send you some written comments, and and, and maybe we can talk about it. That's great. Well. I'm, I'm quite worried about it because I I kind of feel like. On the one hand, I'm completely out of my depth. You know, uh, we have these conversations, and I try to think thoughts that are vaguely coherent and uh, so on. Um, and I'm kind of aware that I'm constantly sort of stumbling about. But but equally, uh, one thing that you'll see in 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 what I've written, and this is something that I'd like to um, continue in in what what I write about Shinran. I'm quite, I'm very interested in the idea of um, hermeneutic distance mm -hmm. um, because it's basically a, I think it's like, um, it's sort of like a part of the, part of the human condition really uh, in relation to uh, religious traditions that you're, you're constantly trying to make sense of something uh, that 
arose quite a long time ago, right. uh, uh, probably in a different language, in a different place, you know, where, where things were different. And then you're now inheriting this and you're trying to make some sense of what it means. Um, and that's kind of how I see being a Buddhist in the 21st century. Uh, but yeah, as, as I just said, it, it is really the position of kind of any, any, anyone who's trying to engage with a spiritual or religious tradition. Um, right. Shinran was in that position too, only in a different moment of history. So he, he had his own um, kind of tools, his own hermeneutic tools. He had his own resources available to him. And he made the sense that he did of his, of his inheritance. And where like in a new situation um where i mean the inheritance that we've got obviously is just unparalleled it's just um crazy isn't it yeah uh, <laughs> uh, but it, I, I'm, I'm quite fascinated by that being being a human being being the being that let's just say being the being that i am and with the education that i've got and the life that i've lived and i'm sort of i, I sort of get hold of the collected works of shinran if you like and i start reading it and how on earth do I make any sense of it? Right. Um, that, that, that really intrigues me. And, and how do I know if the sense I'm make, making of it is a useful sense or, or, or is just way off? How do you evaluate that? And, um, and, and I'm also interested in a kind of a sort of personal existential reading of the material rather than just like a scholarly reading because that usually I think scholarly readings are privileged in the sense that somebody works out that Shinran read this and he read that and that's why he wrote this and he got this from there and this from there and so on um, but I, yeah I, I'm, I'm more interested in kind of o o opening up Shinran and trying to work out so what would this mean for me or what could this mean for me as someone who's a Buddhist today right I, I was just I was just thinking of the, 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 the tools that we're using, you know, computers and the, the, the fact that we're that we're able to see each other's images and hear one another's voices at a, at a distance between Cuernavaca and and in um, New Mexico. And the fact that we're using a book, a bound book uh, written in a language that Shinran could couldn't have even dreamed whatever exist. We're doing all this stuff. You know, if Shinran were to suddenly appear in my my room or in your in your room and see all this, it would be totally unfamiliar. I mean, we just <laughs> and and yet there's this possibility of some kind of communication, or at least the illusion of it. Maybe. There's no communication whatsoever, <laughs> but well, yeah, I think the hermeneutical distance thing is is endlessly fascinating. It really is. At the very least, there's some kind of uh, dialogue with the text, um, right. uh, and th this is again something that interests interests me uh, about hermeneutics. The, the well, the idea of the hermeneutic circle, which I think comes from Godema. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, I think it, it originated in biblical studies, didn't it? Um, right. Hermeneutics. Right. It's clearly about any situation where you're coming into contact with the unknown and you're trying to make sense of it. Um, right. uh, and 
Yeah, so in this case, I, I love the way you just put that, that we're reading these texts in a language that Shinran would never even have dreamt existed. And yet yeah. apparently they're the words that he wrote. Right. <laughs> um, and some very kind Japanese scholars have put all this energy into trying to translate these words into English so that people like us can read them and try and make some sense of them. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the... the, the uh... You really wonder what 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 would Shinran make of, of this, this this kind of an object? You know, what is that thing in your hands? What are you doing with that? Right, he would have had scrolls. Uh, he yeah, would have some scrolls. Yeah. Right, right. And that, that or, is an absolutely fascinating thought experiment to uh, to imagine. <laughs> like, I was actually thinking as you spoke, if Shinran was kind of listening in on our uh, Zoom call. And let well let let let's assume that somehow magically he'd learnt to understand English, so he could understand what we were saying. Yeah, uh, what, what, what what would he make of it all? You know, one of those fishes in his ear. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, Babel fish. I think it's. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I assume that that's what you have in your ear. <laughs>